0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Pimping Religion for Political Empire Amos the Prophet, Amaziah the Priest, and Jeroboam the King, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 15th, 2007. Is America an empire? The new Rome? And if it is, what role ought Christians to play? I like Colin Murphy's approach in his new book called Are We Rome? He says that in a thousand specific ways, the answer is obviously no. But in a handful of important ways, the answer is certainly yes he explores six parallels of what he calls direct relevance between ancient Rome and modern America. America and Rome, he says, both suffer from an exaggerated sense of exceptionalism. Expansive militarism also characterizes both societies. Today, for example, America has 700 bases in 60 countries. In any any one year will conduct operations of some sort in 170 countries. In Rome, both in Rome and America, says Murphy, he sees the deflection of public purpose by private interest. Both empires view people who live outside of their orbit with patronizing condescension as inferiors. Fifth, Murphy explores the ideas of borders, both literal and figurative. And finally, in his epilogue, he wonders whether the inherent complexity of overextended empires like Rome and America make them ungovernable. As I read Murphy's book in the Prophet Amos this week, my mind kept ricocheting between modern America, imperial Rome, in ancient Israel. Amos wrote 2800 long years ago, but his prophecy reads like today's newspaper. Amos lived under the renowned King Jeroboam II, who reigned for 41 years and forged a kingdom characterized by territorial expansion, aggressive militarism, in unprecedented economic prosperity for the nation. Many Hebrews of that day interpreted their fine times as God's special favor upon them. Amos says that people were intensely and sincerely religious, but theirs was a privatized religion that ignored the poor, the widow, the alien, and the orphan. It was a sort of religion that degraded faith to culturally acceptable ritual. Worst of all, and herein lies a seventh characteristic of empires that Colin Murphy does not consider, Israel's religious leaders sanctioned the political and economic status quo. They pimped religion for Jeroboam's empire. Enter Amos. He preached from the lunatic, pessimistic, and unpatriotic fringe. Amos was blue collar rather than blue blooded. He tells us that he was neither a prophet nor even the son of a prophet in the professional sense of that term. Instead, he was a shepherd, a farmer, and a tender of fig trees a small-town boy who grew up in Tekoa, about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem, and five miles south of Bethlehem. The cultured elites of his day despised Amos as a redneck. And furthermore, he was an unwelcome outsider. Born in the southern kingdom of Judah, Yahweh called him to thunder a prophetic word to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's just what this coarse, rough-hewn prophet did. His fiery rhetoric opposed the powers of his day. With graphic details that make you wince, he describes how the rich crushed the poor. The affluent with their expensive lotions, elaborate music, and vacation homes with beds of inlaid ivory. Sexual debauchery, where a man and his son abused the same woman, a corrupt legal system that sold justice to the highest bidder, predatory lenders who exploited vulnerable families, and on top of it all, religious leaders who aided and abetted all of this. This week's reading from Amos chapter 7, verses 7 to 17 relates one of the most dramatic encounters in all of Scripture. The text ought to come with warning labels like not recommended for children or side effects include severe political discomfort. To the priests who defended, legitimized, and justified Jeroboam's political power, Amos delivered an uncompromising word of warning. After Amaziah the priest told Jeremiah, Jeroboam the king, that Amos' preaching was unpatriotic and conspiratorial, he tried to run him out of town. Get out, you seer, go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Then Amaziah said something that reveals just how completely he had identified religious faith with political power. It ought to send a chill up the spine of every religious leader who ever thought about sucking up to political power. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos 7.13 With those words, the religious justification of political empire is complete, and faith is reduced to patriotic cheerleading. But Amos wouldn't be bullied. He had a word of his own for every priest who prostituted religion for empire. We read his colorful words in chapter 7, verse 17. Your wife will become a whore. Your kids will be violently murdered. Enemies will carve up the country. You'll die far, far from home. And pagan Assyria will devour the political and economic empire you've sanctioned in God's name. The Christian church has a checkered history in its relationship to the state. Many have followed in the footsteps of Amaziah, and traded religious legitimation for security, power, and privilege. The German Christian movement that supported Nazi ideology. The Dutch Reformed Church that supported apartheid in South Africa. And Russian Orthodox priests who collaborated with the Soviet KGB. Here in America, the Archbishop and Martyr of San Salvador Oscar Romero wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter that he could have sent to any number of our commanders-in-chief. Romero wrote, Mr. President Carter, you say that you're a Christian. If you are really Christian, please stop sending military aid to the military here because they use it only to kill my people. Oscar Romero is only one of many brave saints who followed the other path, the path of Amos, instead of the path of Amaziah. We remember the Confessing Church in Germany that opposed Hitler, nationalism, and anti-Semitism. The black Pentecostal pastor Frank Chikane, who in 1985 gathered more than 150 clergy from 20 denominations to draft the Kairos document, that protested South African apartheid. Father Gleb Yakunin, who has insisted that the Russian Orthodox Church publicly repent of its Soviet regime. The culturally marginal and politically powerless Quakers who helped to abolish the British slave trade in the 19th century. Morgan Svangorod, who has sought divine intervention to end Robert Mugabe's three decades of brutality, catastrophic policies and gross incompetence in Zimbabwe. And again back here in America, the Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan, who spent considerable time in prison for his civil disobedience against American policies on racism, nuclear proliferation, and Vietnam. When asked by Nora Gallagher how many times he had been jailed for resisting Caesar, Berrigan responded, not enough. Daniel Berrigan's younger brother, Philip Berrigan, lived from 1923 to 2002. He was also a Catholic priest and was arrested more than 100 times and served a total of 11 years in jail for acting on his conviction that the good news of Jesus constituted a higher law than the demands of the state. Philip Berrigan said, quote, It's spelled out in Scripture. It couldn't be possibly more clear. It's spelled out in the wisdom of Isaiah with its injunction to beat swords into plowshares and to learn war no more. To be acceptable to God, it says, we must forsake our weapons, destroy them, Live as brothers and sisters in peace and love. Christians do not hate. Christians do not kill. Christians love their enemies. Yes, it's difficult, but I do know that being a Christian is about nonviolence. It's about justice. It's about being outraged at the way we destroy each other. End quote. Or, we might say, in the language of this week's readings, it's about choosing Amos over Amaziah's defense of Jeroboam. And now for further reflection. How has the church legitimated political and economic power? Consider believers who followed Amos rather than Amaziah. Number three, to what extent should a Christian support the laws and policies of its nation? Number four, consider this conundrum Jesus calls his followers to do something that states cannot and should not do, which is to love our enemies and place their needs above our own needs. Consider Gregory Boyd in his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, where he writes, The path through politics is not the road to God. And finally, for further reading on American Empire, see the trilogy by Chalmers Johnson, Blowback, The Sorrows of Empire, and most recently, his book, Nemesis the last days of the American Republic. For books this week I review a book called Simple Church, Returning to God's Process for Making Disciples by Tom Reiner and Eric Geiger. In this extremely simple and simplistic book, the authors make a simple proposal. Effective and vital churches are simple, whereas complicated, cluttered, and over-programmed churches are much less vital. At first, the authors had a hunch about this thesis based upon informal empirical observations about churches they noticed. Later, they did a statistical study that, at least they contend, verified their hypothesis. And finally, and this will come as no surprise, they found their thesis in the Bible. Simplicity, they contend in the subtitle to this book, returns us to God's process for making disciples. And so, after 2,000 years, the truth is out. Appealing unapologetically to corporate models like Google and Apple, According to Ryder and Geiger, quote, "...simple is in, complexity is out, complexity is not welcome," end quote. Keeping to their word, they offer an extraordinarily simple recipe for effective churches. First, they have a strong suspicion that most churches don't need a mere tweak here or there. They believe that most churches need a radical makeover. They need to start with clean sheet engineering. And next, they only need to do four things. Clarity, movement, alignment, and focus. Bingo, presto, changeo. A friend gave me this book to read, and I was later surprised to see that it had been hailed as a leading book of the past year in the areas of church and pastoral studies. I suspect that it has tapped into several overlapping realities. The difficulties, that is to say, in fact, the complexities of pastoring well, the palpable frustrations that pastors experience when they feel like they're not pastoring well, churches that are in fact poorly organized, needlessly complicated and lacking focus, and the natural longing on the part of these pastors from for some very directive advice about what to do with this sad state of affairs. But despite the promises and rhetoric, this book, like every other technique and gimmick, will disappoint. No real nuanced definition of what constitutes an effective church is given, except perhaps for increased attendance. The marks of vitality that the authors return to over and over again look suspiciously similar, generic, and already exist in most churches. Get parishioners to attend worship, study the Bible, join a small group, learn to serve. Their study is narrowly limited to what they call evangelical churches, whatever that broad category might mean, because they never define it. With the size in an average church in America hovering at around 100 people, it's easy to imagine how a pastor will feel about a case study of a church that grew to 16,000 members in 10 years. And finally, I myself have never experienced the Christian life or the Christian church as simple, and it strikes me as a false hope to suggest that it is. For, all, for an alternative viewpoint on pastoral call and identity, I recommend Henry Nouwen's little gem called In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership, in which Nouwen construes the three temptations of Jesus, which are in fact the three temptations of all Christian ministers, as the temptations to be relevant, the temptation to be spectacular, and the temptation to be powerful. Thomas, Reiner, and Eric Geiger, Simple Church. For film this week, I review the Irish film called Once from the year 2006. This low-budget film has won uniformly rave reviews, not to mention the 2007 Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival. The plot is about as simple as plot can get. An aspiring street musician whose girlfriend left him for London lives above his father's vacuum cleaner repair shop. A much younger girl who has moved to Dublin from the Czech Republic after her husband left her hears him play and becomes his motivating inspiration. Their tender friendship is mediated by their mutual love for music, and many people have referred to this film as a musical, what with a dozen or so songs that move the story along. Best of all is a, is a surprise and decidedly ambiguous ending. Actors Glenn Hansard of the Dublin Blaise, Dublin-based group The Frames and the Czech singer-songwriter Margita Erglova, who was only 17 when the film was made, sing their own songs in this feel-good flick. From Ireland, the film Once. And finally for this week, for poetry, we've posted an early Celtic prayer called Creation Praise. I've taken this early Celtic prayer from Calvin Miller's new book, The Path of Celtic Prayer. I offer thee every wave that ever moved, every heart that ever loved, thee my Father's well-beloved, dear Lord. Every river dashing, Every lightning flashing, like the angel's sword, Benedissimus te. I offer thee every cloud that ever swept o'er the skies and broke and wept in rain, and with the flowerlets slept my king. Each communicant praying, every angel staying before thy throne to sing, Adoramus te I offer thee every flake of virgin snow every spring of earth below every joy and human woe my love O Lord and all the glorious self or death victorious throned in heaven above glorificamus te a Celtic Praise of Creation, taken from Calvin Miller, The Path of Celtic Prayer. And thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 15th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenen.